0: Welcome to this episode of the award winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at the way terrible patterns of the past, well, past and present, like colonialism, racism, propaganda, feudalism, and abuse of corporate monopoly power are recreating and re entrenching themselves in the digital world. Clips today are from The Majority Report, Wisecrack, This Machine Kills, Your Undivided Attention, The Arts of Travel, and Future Hindsight with additional members-only clips from Future Tense and This Machine Kills. And stay tuned to the end for my list of recommendations for how to use the internet without it making you want to kill yourself.
1: I think a lot of the early libert- a lot of the early internet thinkers were libertarians, self statedly. So, um, but really, what I've seen is that a lot of these companies pay a lot of lip service to freedom of expression, to human rights. I mean, we've seen this with uh, Meta or Facebook's latest human rights report, which is pretty shallow. Um, but ultimately, these companies are doing what's best for their bottom line um, and not what's best for their users or for rights.
2: Right, and and you mentioned Meta and Facebook there. I think. That was a, a large focus of your book. Um, why Would you say that Facebook is kind of the worst offender in terms of the structure of that company? And, and what do you find about it to be so problematic?
1: Yes, I mean I think it's fair to say that all of the all of the major tech platforms, social media platforms, have problems with their policies and practice. But Facebook or Meta really is one of the worst offenders, and part of it is the structure of the board and the company, the fact that Zuckerberg himself, you know, has um, a majority, sh- uh, uh, sh- uh, sorry, uh, majority share uh, in this in yeah in the company. Um, but also just the fact that they really, um, you know, they keep. They they put a strong focus in the United States and on issues there, but they really marginalize uh, the rest of the world and the rest of their users, even though those users make up the majority. Um, and that's really what gets me with Facebook is that they're not they're not even really trying to fix the myriad problems that that advocates have brought to them for the past decade or so.
2: And what does that look like when it's tilting the scales in favor of wealthier countries, um, kind of? tracing over the lines of colonialism and exploitation and just printing it onto their algorithm to a degree
1: how does that manifest itself um in in actual in in reality Sure. I mean, there's so many examples, and marginalized people everywhere, including in the U.S., um, are often you know silenced by these platforms. But to give one clear, concrete example, we've seen a lot of exceptionalism when it comes to the way that Ukrainians are being treated on these platforms. They're given a lot more leeway, including uh, violent and extremist groups in Ukraine that are fighting back against Russia. They're given a lot more leeway to share violent content and praise of even you know neo-Nazi organizations. Um, whereas Syrians, on the other side of that, another another um, population that's been in conflict for more than, you know, for a decade now, um, they're often, you know, absolutely silenced by these platforms. Human rights documentation is removed by the platform. So even things that could be used in, say, war crimes tribunals. Um, and so that just kind of demonstrates the imbalance and the the sort of disproportionate uh, leeway given to certain groups. Um, and, you know, often, again, like you said, along colonialist lines.
2: Um, and, and is that it, would you trace that more to to that, to, to power imbalances, uh, or is it really just, well, it's probably one and the same, but there is, of course, racism involved. But that's obscured, I guess, because people think it's just, it's tech. It's an algorithm. There's no way for it to uh, have a, a racist infrastructure or one that, um, you know, exacerbates already problematic and existing power dynamics. What What's your response to, to that?
1: Sure, I mean, yeah, I think it is a little bit of everything, um, but really I think what we have to keep in mind is that there's humans behind the algorithms. Humans are the ones making the policies, deciding that, uh, you know. and this has been explicit with Meta's policies, that Ukraine is given exceptions to their hate speech policy um, they're you know it's it's humans who are building the algorithms who are baking in bias into the ways in which these algorithms say for example decide what is or is not hate speech and what should or should not be taken down um so to use a you know a fairly innocuous example the word um, i hope it's okay to say this the word dyke which is a word that is a slur but is reclaimed by uh, by queer communities um, that's a word that algorithms often remove even when it's being used positively or Or self-referentially. And so you can see how that would play out along other controversial terms. Um, And that's, you know, that's something that's programmed by people who either lack understanding of or deprecate the secondary meaning of a term. And is it possible that, well, I'll I'll ask this a little bit more straightforwardly. Are
2: there any other major tech companies that are doing it better? Like is TikTok doing it better? Is Twitter doing it better? (laughs) Um, Twitter seems from and I don't know anything, but just from my usage, it seems to be the least um, problematic in that way. But I, I, I even hesitate to say that because of course, it has its own massive problems as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, all of these companies have problems. I would say that Twitter, you know, Twitter's been embroiled in some controversy over the past few months and I'm not very impressed with their CEO. But at the same time, you know, I do know some folks on their policy team and I see the effort that they've put into getting geopolitics right, at least. They do get a lot of other things wrong. So I don't want to give them too much credit. Um, If I were to point to a company that I think gets more things right than most, I would say Reddit, actually. Um, And of course, they've certainly had controversies over things like, uh, you know, in the past over um, child sexual abuse, imagery as well as more recently over the the Donald. Um, But they've put in place, you know, rather innovative methods such as, you know, quarantining a certain community so that it can still exist, there's expression there, but new people can't join. So it spread, uh, you know, it limits the ability for those communities to go viral. They also have uh, individuals volunteer to moderate their own subreddits, which gives people, you know, sort of a sense of empowerment over the community that they're a part of, and I think that's really important. I'll also say Reddit gets higher ratings than all of the other companies when it comes to transparency.
2: That's that's interesting. Um. So uh, so Silicon Valley, I feel like has, and the I think a lot of the libertarians and right wingers who are now using it as an opportunity to feel aggrieved, um, have conflated First Amendment violations with censorship on these platforms. And you argue that censorship should there's I don't want to misrepresent your argument, but I believe you argue that censorship is good in some instances on some of these platforms. Um, Can you talk about that false equivalency and what it upholds and why your position is what it is?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so the First Amendment protects us from state interference. So companies, legally speaking, can do pretty much whatever they want when it comes to curating their own platforms. Um, Now, my argument is really that censorship is a value neutral term. It's not a legal term. It's not synonymous with the First Amendment. And so the way that I see it is that there's censorship that we agree with and censorship that we don't agree with. And of course, we, you know, varies by community, by country, by person. Um, And so, for example, I think it's fair to say that we the majority of us agree that child sexual abuse imagery absolutely should be censored. And that's okay. We should just be honest about what we're doing there. I think when it comes to terrorist extremist content, that's actually a more, um, you know, for me, that's much more up for discussion because there is some value for society to be able to see into a violent conflict. If we, you know, if we just let YouTube erase all of that imagery, then we're not necessarily going to know what's really happening on the ground in Syria, in Ukraine, in Yemen. Um, And so that's an area where I would say it's censorship and censorship that I don't always necessarily agree with. And so I guess what I'm saying with companies is that while I'm not in favor of censorship per se, I think that there are some things that they should limit for the greater good. And I think that we should be looking towards international human rights frameworks to determine what those things are.
3: Before we get into internet rage, let's talk about why anger feels so good. Here's what happens in your brain when you see a post about how comedians don't feel safe doing comedy anymore because of the slap. At the first sign of stress, the oxygen and glucose flood out the prefrontal cortex, where our rational thinking lives, and the amygdala takes over. Now, the amygdala is the part of the brain associated with emotion, and when it teams up with the hypothalamus to get stress hormones pumping out of your adrenal glands, look out, world. In other words, your brain, and therefore your body, is fired up and ready to fight. Or flee, but probably fight. Now, anger gives you the same adrenaline rush that thrill-seeking does. So maybe next time you feel pissed, just go skydiving instead. Now, this reactive aggression activates a reward network of dopamine in the brain. It's the same one that activates when we see something cute or funny, like uh, like a dog riding a surfboard. And it's tough to outrun dopamine. Once we get a little bit of it, we're conditioned to automatically want more of it. Being angry creates a feedback loop that's too neurologically enticing to ignore. Now, anger has deep roots in our psyche, playing a complex role in how our emotional processing skills develop as children. And it's not a purely negative emotion either. It can give the illusion of control over situations and even positively influence decision making. Expressing anger, whether you're yelling or slamming doors, can also promote higher levels of well being and lower stress. Though it does make you a pain to be around. Seriously, No one likes you when you're angry, even if you think that's like a part of your personality or my family's always been like that. Nobody likes it. Take it from me, I had to work through it in therapy. On the flip side, suppressing your anger can lead to irritability, guilt, and decreased life satisfaction. So we get that anger can feel good, but why is being angry right here on the internet so specifically pleasing? More so than say, screaming at your barista for giving you the wrong milk alternative. Well, as scholar Ryan Martin explains, when people express their anger online, they want to hear that others share it because they feel they're vindicated and a little less lonely and isolated in their belief. It can give a sense of catharsis, however brief. There's a downside though. Martin says previous research shows that people who vent end up being angrier down the road, but sharing your feelings online can also have one huge benefit, anonymity. As a study by psychologist Kimberly M. Christofferson found, online anonymity serves three purposes, recovery, catharsis, and autonomy. Recovery is the sense of relaxation after actively contemplating your situation. Catharsis is an emotional purge, and autonomy refers to the chance to try on potentially socially unacceptable forms of behavior without any repercussions. So when you post on Reddit, you leave feeling revived, emotionally recharged, and like you're in complete control of your own actions, social conventions be damned. So getting angry, isn't always necessarily unhealthy. But is online anger uniquely harmful or at least counterproductive? To find out, let's look at a hypothetical form of discourse on say, Twitter the website that's been ruining my life since 2009. Some of the most provocative, widely shared social media posts are typically known as hot takes. The term hot take comes from sports journalism around 2012 when increasingly controversial opinion columns and shows captivated the online masses. Let me say this straight up and down. I think Kyrie Irving should retire. As scholar Glenn Fuller writes, the hot take is a form of discursive commentary native to the post-broadcast, networked, and global communications industry. Hot takes capitalize on the selective para-editorial practice of social media users and their cultural tastes. That is to say, hot takes rely on the hyper-connected nature of social media and on our tendency to be less than strict with our editorial demands for what we create or share there. Also, hot takes was a short-lived wisecrack format that did not lead to enough online rage to warrant continued production, but you should go watch the episode on haircuts. It's the good one, and it's very fun. Hot takes often stem from anger about a dominant mode of thinking in society, whether it's as weighty as politics, or as seemingly superficial as Ashton Kutcher saying his children rarely bathe. Now, here's the thing. If you can see the dirt on them, clean them. Yeah.
4: Otherwise, there's no
3: point. And hot takes can feel good, especially when your followers applaud you. But you're not always going to be right. The internet gives us space to wildly overestimate our knowledge and get annoyed when we see content that we think is wrong. And our penchant for hot takes on things we know little about is an example of the Dunning-Kruger effect. That's the social phenomenon where the least competent or well-versed of us overestimate our understanding of a particular issue. Like some of you, when when you tell me I don't know things about philosophy in the comments, you're being a little dunning Krugerish there. But even when hot takes are delivered by underqualified people, they're often delivered with profound certainty. If you were to assemble a
5: list, a hierarchy of concerns, of problems this country faces, where would white supremacy be on the list? Right up there with Russia, probably. It's actually not a real problem in
3: America. An Arizona State University study found that compared to traditional media, tweets tend to exhibit higher levels of certainty and lower levels of tentativeness. And the internet is built to reward quick, impulsive hot takes as long as they seem confident. And I'm taking my kids to Disney and we had to wait to get on a ride because a bunch of 37 year olds are all like getting emotional to get on the teacups or whatever. I'm just a little pissed. I'm like, hey, you had your shot at childhood. When a hot take filled thread gains enough attention, it's often followed by what's known as a quote tweet pile on, i.e. when lots of people retweet it with thoughts ranging from snarky to go swim and dog the pylon aspect is often fueled by moral outrage against a perceived transgression, which a Stanford University meta-study found is increasingly common in contemporary public discourse. Paradoxically, that same study found that a pylon is often seen as bullying and can actually increase sympathy for the original poster. Some of that may be because, as a study in Connecticut Law Review puts it, moral outrage also seems to lead people to engage in sophistry or bad arguments, partly because one component of outrage is anger, which impairs judgment and decision-making. So in your outrage, you're probably just making arguments. What's more, you might be engaging in what the internet calls virtue signaling and scholars Justin Tosi and Brandon Warnkey call grandstanding. Essentially, these terms mean saying something in the public sphere for the purpose of impressing others with your moral qualities. When grandstanding, you'll often feel angry or excited as they write, the goal is to receive a general form of admiration or respect for being on the side of the angels. Now, it's natural to assume we are morally good, According to behavioral scientists Nadav Klein and Nicholas Epley, few biases in human judgment are easier to demonstrate than self-righteousness, the tendency to believe one is more moral than others. Grandstanding is annoying, but more perniciously, it's also often a pretext for genuine vitriol. Tosi and Warmke write that people use moral talk to humiliate, intimidate, and threaten people they dislike, impress their friends, feel better about themselves, and make people less suspicious of their own misconduct. The prevalence of moral grandstanding may be part of the reason why scholars William J. Brady and MJ Crockett argue that moral outrage online is not ultimately effective at galvanizing social change. What's more, they conclude that it may also lead to dehumanization of the enemy, which can even contribute to offline violence. That's because it's much easier to get angry at someone than to understand them. As political economist Will Davies argues, if mutual recognition is necessarily slow, then diversion through fury and hostility is extremely fast. Now, the goal of every Twitter post is to receive attention, thus the popularity of hot takes. And yet the more viral a post becomes, Davies argues, the greater the likelihood it'll be misinterpreted, furthering outrage. He argues, the pursuit of attention is fundamentally at odds with the pursuit of mutual understanding. In this way, on Twitter, he says, misunderstanding and misrepresentation becomes the normal mode of social exchange, making discourse feel like violence. Speaking of violence, after being blitzed with tweets ranging from valid and coherent to, you know, death threats, the next step of the Twitter hot take cycle happens the double down. It's common to see folks with the worst possible takes refuse to yield one inch. You could attribute this to a psychological phenomenon called belief perseverance, or conceptual conservatism. According to a Stanford study, beliefs are remarkably resilient in the face of empirical challenges that seem logically devastating. And in fact, beliefs can actually grow stronger when confronted with opposing information. Scholar Leah Savion argues that belief perseverance, clinging to explicitly discredited beliefs, is ubiquitous to the point of serving as the ultimate evidence of the fear. Feebleness of our mind. And if empirical evidence can do little to persuade us to change our minds, angry tweets are even less likely to. The double-down is the ultimate proof that all the angry discourse has done little to change anybody's opinion. And then, the next day, this whole pattern repeats itself. Thus, as Davies argues, Twitter is a machine for increasing the overall levels of anger in the world. And yet just every day I, I get up and I and I go into that world and I treat it like it's real and it's it's been destroying my brain. Who would I be without Twitter? I want to meet that guy.
6: We're talking about this
4: startup. <laughs> uh, As Sonas.
6: Which, um, offers an amazing product as Jathan was alluding to. It allows you to, uh, turn your voice into a different, su- it translates your accent. Um, and right now that means to a white American sounding accent, but they claim it's going to be any accent to any accent, but right now it's white American accent. And, um, one thing I really loved in writing about it, I wrote about it after SF gate wrote about it. And then the guardian wrote about it and everyone was each trying to get their own like juicy quotes from, uh <laughs> from the founders uh, because they're just like unperturbed and undisturbed about the idea that like their thing could do anything wrong. They don't think that there's anything to worry about. They don't think that there's a problem. I remember in the guardian, they had a quote where the guy was like, um, Yes, this is wrong, but a lot of things exist in the world. <laughs> the folk was like, yes, this is wrong, and we should not have existed at all. But a lot of things exist in the world. Like, why does makeup exist? Why can't people accept the way they are? Is it wrong the way the world is? Absolutely. But do we then let agents suffer? I built this technology for the agents because I don't want him or her to go through what I went through
0: what calling a uh, tech support and getting someone with an Indian accent and getting frustrated because it couldn't understand them.
6: Yeah. I mean, that's really what it comes down to.
0: Yes. It was, was the, there was a the whole impetus for him creating this,
6: this. Yeah. This is like, it was created because he was like, look, like people are incredibly, were are incredibly racist to me. Um, when I was on the phone and it was because I didn't sound like them. So I created this thing that makes you sound like them and now you won't get discriminated against. And now they'll be nice to you. But it's like, There's a a few few issues with this theory, right? The surveillance that the workers go through, the um, intense analytics that enforce higher and higher performance uh, standards, right? Like the idea that, okay, we already put you under crushing pressure and surveillance. Now we can turn your voice white. We're going to make you have even higher productivity standards. Like the idea that's not going to be present. When I talked with them, they were resistant to that idea and it's kind of wild. It's uh like call center workers are there because they're like a first line of defense for angry customers, right? Um, it's similar. They look the way that the work works. It's kind of structured similar to content moderation. It's, it's similar to like all the sort of invisible labor that powers digital systems. It's the most traumatic stuff, the most difficult stuff, the most important stuff often. And the idea that you, you can change all of this by making workers sound white that just like reinforces the racism and does nothing to address it. so what's the point?
4: yeah it I mean it's it, it, there's there's so much to to get into here because yeah. <laughs> it's it's such a funny archetype of such a old like ten year ago startup right and like startup mentality I mean this is like it's classic like mores of technological mm-hmm. solutionism of like identifying, but, but they're actually identifying a real problem in the world. Uh, you know, that like, yes, there is racism and, and, and people that work in call centers are subjected to all kinds of, uh you know, a, a verbal abuse and, and like actual racism and things from people that they work with their bosses, but also of course people calling in, right. It's like, you know it's it's really awful and that and it leads to also like this really uh you know uh, like like you know racist but like you know plausible plausibly deniable kind of claims around um, you know, our call centers are people that, uh, you know, are not in, on the other side of the world. You know, like companies will, will do that, right? Where it's like, you know, we employ people down, like right here, um, at home, which is all just very like racist and nationalist, right? And like, yes. So they've identified a real problem, but their solution to it is so, so not a solution, so absurd it's it's boss tech right like that's what they've given and and dressed up in the language of worker empowerment it's really it's really quite absurd but also on the other hand the founders are so are like such funny guys like i can't tell if they are just uh uh like extremely clever like marketing right like uh, like we're talking about it, you know, all these people are writing articles about it. You know, you, SF Guardian, whatever. Like they were definitely went through a cycle of like, you know, being tweeted about and stuff like that. Like, you know, and I, I jumped in on that, and I saw it because other people were ju- were tweeting and and like dunking on it. And I, you know, on one hand, like, you can't pay for this kind of publicity, you know, and like giving like actually like wild ass quotes in on the record to different uh, publications is, is a really smart way to get, uh, you quoted a lot in a piece about the, uh, about the art, about the, the technology. So I can't tell if they're just like really, really clever at marketing, um, their thing or if they are, uh, just like extremely naive, like actual, like true believers. Uh, you know, it might be a little bit of both, but like, you know, it, you, you quoted from the Guardian, the founder being like, you know, um, yes, this is wrong and our company shouldn't exist, but you know, we shouldn't also, we shouldn't have makeup either, right? Like we need, you know, we, it, 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 until we can change the beauty standards. Uh, then we gotta, you know, we gotta do what we can to fit into the world until we can change structural racism. We gotta do what we can to make people's lives better. That contrasts very, like, hilariously and and directly with what he said in the SF Gate (laughs) article where the, the founder of the company was quoted in SF Gate saying that uh, "Quote: We don't foresee anything bad coming out of this. <laughs> In fact, I'll take the opposite approach and just say this is a GDP shifting product. This will bring millions of jobs to the Philippines, millions of jobs to India, millions of jobs to places that otherwise wouldn't be allowed to enter that conversation. <laughs> I mean, I do wish more tech founders would be so would just like explicitly come out and be like." Uh, we do not foresee anything bad coming out of this it would be, it'd be like way easier to make them eat those words later.
6: It's also like in one of the articles, they said, look, this is, go- this is a GDP growth engine, you know, like this is going to create so many jobs and enrich so many people. Um, And then proceeded to just give an argument that, well, that sounded like what we would, you know, what some people might say in defense of sweatshops, right? Look, like somebody's got to do the work. And better them um, than anyone else. And it's also interesting the way that they want to scale it up. If you um they talked about it in in, in the interviews, they wanna do they want to scale it up to business to business enterprises, they want to scale it up to healthcare, they want to like expand it to more places where people's accents get in the way, legitimately do get in the way, but also like again, because of racism, um and and have no desire to affect um, What causes the racism And you know it's like What's the point Someone might say Well what do you want A startup to solve racism It's like no I want um A startup that doesn't Affirm it You know If we're gonna If we're gonna Suffer startups Right Maybe don't make one Where you're basically Going look I get it When some Sometimes When you listen To a person with an Indian voice Your blood boils Don't worry We have a product for you It's gonna make them Sound just like you And then you can yell at them for other perfectly legitimate reasons.
0: Today's episode is sponsored by ExpressVPN, and I have been a customer of theirs for years, so I am pretty happy to tell you about them. Firstly, if you're not familiar with VPNs, They're sort of like an invisibility cloak and a skeleton key for the entire internet all in one. They protect your privacy by shielding your web traffic from prying eyes who want to micro-target you with ads and do other even more nefarious things. And they help you access restricted content around the world by letting you spoof your location. I've tried a few VPNs, and I really can say that ExpressVPN is the one that I've had the best experience with. And look... If all that cloak and dagger doesn't feel necessary to you, the truth is that the most frequent usage of VPNs is to unlock movies and TV shows that are available in other countries. Like Netflix has different libraries for each country. If you're waiting for the new season of Better Call Saul to show up on Netflix, well, it's already available in the UK, just as one of thousands of examples. All you have to do is fire up the ExpressVPN app, change your location to the UK, refresh Netflix, and that's it. But it's not just Netflix. It works with nearly any streaming service and is ridiculously fast, so you can easily stream in HD, and it's compatible with all your favorite devices. As I said, I've been an ExpressVPN user for both privacy and digital globetrotting purposes for years now. It really is the must-have app for any citizen of the world on the internet. And if you visit expressvpn.com slash best of left, you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. And of course, you support the show when you use our link. You can watch what you want, protect yourself, and everything. ExpressVPN at expressvpn.com
5: slash best of the left. If you didn't know, TikTok recently surpassed Google and Facebook as the most popular site on the internet in 2021 and is expected to reach more than 1.8 billion users by the end of 2022. So imagine the analogy that the U.S. didn't just allow the Soviet Union to run 13 hours a day of children's TV programming in the U.S., but we allowed the Soviet Union to run 1 billion TV sets In the entire Western world, except they had an artificial intelligence who could perfectly tune what propaganda each person in the US or Western world across a billion TV sets would see. Now before we go any further, we should make very clear, TikTok is not run by China. TikTok is the flagship app of a company called ByteDance, which is headquartered in China. So ByteDance and China are two distinct entities with different motives, but sometimes those motives come into conflict. And the Chinese government does sometimes force its tech companies' hands. The CEOs of Chinese tech companies have notoriously been abducted on several occasions. So the Chinese government does not control TikTok, but it has massive influence over it. Now, congressional activity against TikTok is picking up. Recently, the commissioner of the Federal Communications Commission, Brendan Carr, wrote a public letter to Apple and Google asking them to remove TikTok from its app stores. And this is citing a recent BuzzFeed news report that Chinese ByteDance staff had accessed U.S. TikTok user data on multiple occasions. And then last month in July, in a more powerful move, bipartisan leaders on the Senate Intelligence Committee asked the Federal Trade Commission to investigate TikTok's data practices and corporate governance over concerns that they pose privacy and security risks for Americans. The request was signed by Senators Mark Warner and Marco Rubio. Meanwhile, TikTok is starting to go on the defensive, For example, in its recent announcement about its commitment to election integrity, and that it's creating an election center to be a hub for authoritative election information. So congressional activity is picking up, and TikTok's response is also picking up. So Tristan, let's talk about what are the harms? Like,
7: I think the two obvious ones are, of course, surveillance and data gathering, and that was the target of the recent Biden executive order of protecting Americans' sensitive data from foreign adversaries. Just so listeners know what kind of surveillance we're talking about, there's a very alarming revelation in August by security and privacy researcher Felix Krauss. What he discovered is that TikTok is running code that tracks and captures every single keystroke when you're using their in-app browser. So that means any search term, your password, credit card information, it's all being tracked by TikTok when you're using the browser built into the app. Now TikTok admits it has this code, but says it's using it for debugging and troubleshooting, which is sort of like when a CEO says that they're resigning to spend more time with their family. They say they're not tracking users' online habits, but here's the
5: question, how do we ever know? Do you want to talk about the other ones? So I think a lot of people look at TikTok and the US government has basically said, let's focus our attention on the data that it gathers on US citizens. It's all about the data. What if they know a user's location? What if they know the location you're accessing the app from and they can figure out your address? What if they know the videos or times of day that you post? What if they know which videos you're browsing late at night? These are the kinds of things that get our concern. But I actually think the TikTok threat is so much bigger than that because I can actually manipulate per person, the information that gets risen to the top in everyone's newsfeeds. Now we've actually seen this before. In 2014, it was exposed that Facebook did experiments where users were shown happier or sadder content, and then it found that it actually shifted the content that those users shared. And TikTok could do the same thing, but instead of for happier or sad content, it could actually shift to pro-China content or anti-Taiwan content in an event that they were to say, start a war with Taiwan. Think about it this way we saw that Russia invaded the Ukraine. And when they did that, while they had propaganda channels online like Sputnik and RT, Russia Today, those were certain propaganda channels. But RT and Sputnik didn't influence all of Facebook, all of Twitter, all of YouTube, all of Instagram, and all of all the platforms to influence what they thought, right? I mean, Putin didn't influence all those platforms, but if China were to be invading Taiwan tomorrow, they could take the most popular information app in the world called TikTok and selectively amplify Western voices who said, well, Taiwan was always a part of China. There's really no problem here. Look at all the things that the U.S. did and all these wars that didn't go anywhere. And they wouldn't necessarily be wrong in some of the things they'd be calling out, but they would be influencing not the propaganda, but what our friend Renee de Resta calls ampliganda, or what we sometimes call amplifaganda, which is the ability to selectively amplify and influence people's attitudes by focusing their attention on the things that you want them to focus on, like a magician. And you know, when you just think about the amount of power and control, especially because Taiwan, for those who are not as aware, holds TSMC, the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing, which is basically all the chips that are in every single product, in cars, and television, microphones, computers, cell phones. Uh, if you had China invade Taiwan and that took over the semiconductor factory for the whole world, this would be a massive, massive problem. And this is the kind of thing that China could influence people's opinion of. Now, we've also talked on this podcast about the ability to influence and manipulate language. We talked about polling. We had Republican political pollster Frank Luntz on this program. And Frank Luntz is famous for doing dial testing. You can test people's sentiments on various topics. So if I say, you know, the Affordable Care Act versus if I call it Obamacare, I can get different reactions out of people, right? And he did that in a room where he would actually say the words and then watch what people's responses were. Well, if I'm TikTok, I can do dial testing at scale. I can do that in every voting district, in my number one geopolitical adversary's countries. And I can actually see, what do they think about various topics? Which way is it trending? I can focus my attention on the swing states. I could do more dial testing than Franklin's could have ever dreamed of. And if I do that at scale and I can see how things are trending and then I selectively amplify what people are seeing, I can turn up and down the dials and potentially choose the next president of the United States. Now a lot of this might sound like a conspiracy theory, or xenophobic, or... Arbitrarily picking out China when you know there's lots of other countries doing various things. But I think we actually have to look at the nature of this threat. Now when we looked earlier at Huawei, for those who don't know, Huawei built the kind of cell phone infrastructure for 5G networks. So they were actually building out 5G cell towers all across the world. And Huawei was found to have backdoors to the Chinese government. And within the last couple of years, India has banned about 200 Chinese apps because they accurately assess the threat, given that India is actually involved in a rivalry with China. So they banned apps like WeChat, UC Browser, Shareit, Baidu Map. And up to a third of TikTok global users up until that time were actually based in India, so this was a big move. Now granted, the Modi government may have ulterior motives here as well. It can be using national security as an excuse to ban various apps and even Twitter posts, and the Indian Supreme Court is reviewing many of these cases because the national security threat hasn't been made clear. Still, we do see the Indian government taking action against Chinese apps. So, you know, this has been done before. We did it with Huawei, we've done it in India. Why wouldn't we do it with TikTok? In the same way that Huawei would
7: enable backdoor access to all the information of our country, TikTok is sort of like cultural infrastructure. It gives you access not only to the data, but direct access to influence the mind's information
5: and attention of first
7: our youth culture and then the entirety of our culture.
5: And not to mention influencing the values of who we want to be when we grow up. We mentioned the, the survey of what do kids in the U.S. and Gen Z most want to be when they grow up. Uh, the number one most aspired career is an influencer. And in China, I think in this particular survey, it was an astronaut or a scientist And keep in mind that inside of China, domestically, they regulate TikTok to actually feature educational content. So as you're scrolling, instead of getting influencer videos and all of that, you actually get patriotism videos, science experiments you can do at home, museum exhibits, Chinese history, things like that. And domestically, for kids under the age of 14, they limit their use to 40 minutes a day. They also have opening hours and closing hours, so that at 10 p.m. it's lights out for the entire country. All of TikTok goes dark, and no kids under 14 can use it anymore. And then at six in the morning, it opens up again because they realize that TikTok might be the opiate for the masses and they don't want to opiate their own kids. Meanwhile, they ship the unregulated version of TikTok to the rest of the world that maximizes influencer culture and narcissism, etc. So it's like feeding their own population spinach while shipping opium to the rest of the world. And you could argue that's the West's fault. The West should be regulating TikTok to say, well, what kind of influence do we want? If we want not an influencer culture, we should actually say we want to pass laws that feature educational material or bridge-building content that actually shows people where they agree in a democracy. But so far, we're not doing those things.
8: the long-term strategic vision um, of someone like a Peter Thiel who has used individuals as unlikely as a Hulk Hogan to advance his agenda. When we look at something like an Uber or Lyft or a DoorDash and we connect them to their backers who uh, Thiel and uh, I, you can fill in the names of others are neo-feudalists. They want to return to to feudalism with themselves as as sort of kings. Do you see them as perhaps using these companies as a vehicle um, to institute these changes in capitalism? I know you write about regulatory entrepreneurship. Could you explain what that is and then connect that to this more macabre idea I'm floating that Uber is allowed to be unprofitable because it's not in fact a company it's instead a spear a weapon that people like teal can use to build out a neo-feudal uh united states
6: you know my uh, my thesis my senior thesis in college was on uber and a huge chunk of it you know was an argument that uber should be understood as uh as an accelerationist uh vector for capital accumulation and that it doesn't really matter if Uber, to the investors, to, to to the savvy investors, I guess, right, to the people who forked over the most capital, and the people who have forced the company to do something like its IPO um, to realize a return on capital, it doesn't matter to them whether or not the company is profitable. It matters if the company has value. Um, can be realized. And there are multiple ways for the value to be realized. You can realize it in the market with a literal return on your investment. And you can do that by pr- good news, favorable financials, um, regulatory and legal successes. All that's nice. But the real value is in permanently changing regulations uh, so that it's what was illegal for you is now legal and. Um, Uh, uh, something that you can turn into a new line of business activity, it was illegal at one point for Uber to operate in most of the cities in the United States, right? Locking it out of a a potential market, locking it out of potential revenue. um, By changing the law, it now has access to new markets, riders, right? Uh, and by continuing to change the law, it can expand its margins. It can reduce the amount of money it has to pay workers. It can reduce the amount of money uh it has to cover for their health insurance. It could reduce the amount of money it has to contribute um, to any sort of uh safety net if uh that it might otherwise have to if they were employees. Um and you know, all of that is fine and dandy for Uber and it increases its value, but the real value is that. It's not simply doing this for Uber. It's doing this for other companies in an industry and a set of investments that these people are also involved in, right? And that Uber, like you said, ends up being the tip of the spear for new attempts to realize outsized returns in an age of you know falling profit, in an age of near zero interest rates, and you're not getting returns on your bonds. If you want like a... If you want a return on investment, there are all sorts of bullshit red tape you have to deal with. Things like a minimum wage and health insurance and, and, and labor laws and safety uh, regulations um, and you know limits on pollution, all this bullshit. But if you can fund as a small investment uh, specific enterprises that will eviscerate the rules and the regulations in one field or another, that might reduce the amount of money. Uh, or it, it might reduce a barrier to profit, and it might reduce a barrier to value, uh, to realized value for a, for an investment, and that just helps everybody else out, right? In an age of historically low return on capital, that is a good way to re, to accumulate more. I think it is then important to, uh, I you know I've written about the uh, them being regulatory entrepreneurs because of that, right? And also one of the reasons why I focus on the unprofitability is. Hopefully that people you know, notice that there's no market logic for this. And, and if that's the case, then why the hell uh, do so many drivers have to suffer? Why do people have to starve? Why do people have to sleep in their cars? Uh, because they're not doing it for the market. They're not doing it for your benefit. They're not doing it for my benefit. They're doing it so that a small cadre of investors are able to realize returns elsewhere, not even in that company. If they do it in that company, that would be nice. But in reality, it's going to help them somewhere else that they're invested in because it all vents the gig economy. And that is uh, immoral. Uh, it's unconscionable. It's disgusting. Um, and I hope I try to at least infuse stuff in the writing with like the sense that, um, it is very clear what's going on here, right? And they're not redoing it. They're never going to make a profit. Even the regulatory entrepreneurship will not yield them a profit. This Prop 22 saved them from employee classification, but it introduces new costs. Now they have to pay a little bit of a stipend for um. For health insurance, now they have to, uh, for, for health con- they have to contribute a, to a stipend so that a driver can get access to the Medicare, uh, I mean to the ACA plan in California, right um, they have to contribute to uh, accident coverage, right So now they have, now their costs have increased a little bit, uh, pushing them a little bit further away from profitability, and they're going to have to make up for that by increasing their prices, which will push a little bit of their riders out, again, pushing them further from profitability. But, again, that's not really the point, right, for them. The point is regulatory entrepreneurship and realizing returns elsewhere for investors, which is immoral. Again, you know, it's like well, this system is not – why should this system be allowed to exist?
8: It just feels like we're living in a dream world of capitalism where you screaming there's no – you know, um, "There's these are unprofitable, these are unprofitable, but their stocks keep going up. Um where like a Rick and Morty tweet from Elon Musk can affect, you know, the hundreds of millions of dollars in profit.
9: We are experiencing a transformation of work right now. And... People often talk about it in terms of the gig economy and and often think about it as technologically predetermined. You know, if you are going to have technology, then we're moving to a gig economy. But I actually, I use this term chickenization, which I'll explain, because I think it's really important to understand that these are not techniques of technology. These are techniques of power. These are kind of old feudal techniques, old anti-democratic techniques, And although your eyes may glaze over and you may feel a little intimidated around the idea of, say, regulating the gig economy, I think most people feel like, okay, I may not be a farmer, but I understand farming. So let's let's look at what's happening in farming and you see a microcosm of what's happening in the workplace across the country and across the world. But I'm very much focused on the U.S. here. The term chickenization is actually a term that I got from the great book by Christopher Leonard, The Meat Racket. And it's a term that the pork and beef industry use to describe what is happening to them, how pork and beef are becoming chickenized, which is to say they're adopting this really terrifying business model. Here's the business model. A chicken farmer needs One thing, basically, well, few things, but one thing is essential, life or death, which is uh, the ability to get their chickens to a grocery store so somebody will buy them. And because of really significant changes in antitrust law that happened around the 1980s, the chicken farmer no longer faces a whole suite of options of different distributors, which they could go to to get their chicken to market. Instead, the industry, like so many industries, has been totally consolidated. So there's basically three, four chicken distributors. Think Tyson, Purdue, Pilgrims. And, they, and they've divided up the country uh, regionally. So a chicken farmer in one area of North Carolina will have to use Tyson's to get their chickens to market. Well, Tyson's then uses this incredible power to exercise all kinds of forms of control over the chicken farmer. They look independent. They have their own chicken house. It looks like they're a small business person. But in fact, Tyson says, yeah, well, you can do whatever you want. But if you don't use our feed, we're not taking your chicken to market. If you don't use our eggs, we're not taking your chicken to market. If you don't use our consultants are particular specifications of how to build your chicken house, basically exercising control without taking responsibility. And so all the chicken farmers do all that. And then Tyson says, and you have to sign an arbitration contract. So if we get into a conflict later, you can't sue us in open court. And we get to collect all kinds of data from your farm and spy on you. And you can't talk to your neighbors. You also have to sign a contract that seals your lips. You can't find out how much your neighbors are getting paid, and you're going to get paid different amounts every month. So the farmer is then in a position of rational paranoia. If he or she gets paid a different amount one month, is it because they spoke out Against this system, and there's a lot of farmers. um, I spoke to some, and it's been widely reported who have reported retaliation when they have spoken up against their uh, distributors. Is it because of the weather? Is it because they're subject to an experiment? Maybe Tyson is giving 50 farmers one kind of seed and another 200 farmers another kind, and suddenly their profits are plummeting. They're making poverty wages. And I spoke to chicken farmers, and one of the things that really comes through is the level of depression and almost debilitating rage that farmers feel when you are subject to this arbitrary power but can't see through it. In fact, the suicide rates are are very high. So that's the story of what's happening in chicken farming, but you may have already heard the echoes in here. That's the story of what's happening to Uber drivers. Uber drivers also look independent uh, and there's these wonderful fights to correctly classify them as employees, although that won't solve all the problems, but they are paid different amounts, experimented on required to sign arbitration clauses in this black box. There's also very high levels of depression and this is the same posture that Amazon sellers face in relationship to Amazon. Over 2 million sellers who depend on Amazon for life or death for their businesses, subject to Amazon's experimentation, spying, and extraction. And something that is very, I wrote this book before the pandemic, but something that is very front of mind right now is the way in which restaurants who are facing just a devastating pandemic-related crises, also have the same relationship to delivery apps, because just as a chicken farmer needs Tyson to get to market, a restaurant requires uh, Grubhub Seamless, the delivery apps, to stay alive. If 10 15% of restaurant revenues depend on delivery, you can't survive if one of these platforms kicks you off, and the platforms have the capacity to charge enormous rates, extract data. So it's not just gig work. This is a feudal form of government that is spreading across all these different industries. And I first wanted to press you, but second want to empower you in, in reading this book. Because the good news is, once you see this not as a technological feat, but as an old monopoly business model that keeps rearing its head every 30 or 40 years, you actually can feel a lot more power over it because we can ban these kinds of structures. uh, And we have in the past.
10: Yeah, actually, I think that's really the number one takeaway is that this is just an old model dressed up with quote-unquote, new technology that yeah. enables the monopolists to take advantage of workers, uh, everyday people, like they always have, or that is their propensity yes. to do. Go ahead. I mean, it's the kind of thing where I think the logic of businesses is to want to maximize profits instead of maybe just profit-seeking. But really, it's a different thing to profit-seek and to maximize profits and to impose this regime on us. But- I think maybe a, a good question here is to talk about how we arrived here, because like you said, the antitrust movement used to be really healthy and very ambitious. And then in the 80s, it, it stopped. What happened then? And how do we find ourselves where we are today as a result of what happened in the 80s?
9: Yeah, it was a real transformational moment. And I think people know that when they hear about Reagan, you know, that, that Reagan came in with A not-so-masked, white nostalgia, anti-civil rights agenda, a promise to, quote-unquote, return America to a 1950s America. So he came in with an agenda that was very much about race. It was also very much about deregulation. And at the heart of that deregulatory agenda was antitrust. What you see when you look at the profiles of Reagan's wrecking crew that he brought in from California is that they talked about antitrust. This wasn't some side issue. The agenda was do something about these terrible civil rights laws and gut antitrust. And actually on the flip side, you'd see senators like Senator Phil Hart, one of the key architects of the Voting Rights Act of 65, who had two passions, antitrust and civil rights. And he saw them as deeply connected. So Reagan and Reagan's team also saw them as deeply connected, and came in, appointed hundreds of judges, put in regulators who didn't believe in the regulation. But it wasn't just non-enforcement. It was actually an ideological transformation. And it it shows the power of ideas, which is both very dangerous and also, again, hopeful. Because when you believe in the power of ideas, you know that things can change, even if power looks pretty stuck right now. So the new idea that Reagan brought in is an idea that, was popularized by Bork, the Supreme Court nominee who didn't make it, not the only one, but Bork had really pushed the idea that antitrust laws were uh, tools of abuse, and the only real purpose of antitrust laws was to protect consumer price. And what Bork was taking on is a much longer tradition, a tradition that goes back not just to the Sherman Act of the late 19th century, but actually to the founding of our country and before, where you see in corporate uh, seeds in corporate law of concerns about um, excess corporate power becoming a form of government. The old understanding pre-1980 is that you need strong antitrust laws as a democracy protection. And this is actually how I come in. I, I'm a democracy activist. I write about corruption in my scholarship. I've written about structures to protect democracy. And before 1980, we widely understood that antitrust was important the way that campaign finance was important, that if you want to protect democracy, you need strong antitrust laws. And that's something that Bork and Reagan's team totally rejected. Now, that was a pretty terrible little era there. But you might think, okay, well, when Democrats got back in charge or Democrats in the opposition party would constantly be raising this issue and fighting to break up big companies, fighting to uh, overturn bad court decisions when you saw Reagan uh, judges making bad decisions. But no, instead, we actually saw Clinton, Bush, not, not as surprisingly, Obama, leadership in the Democratic Party, basically ignoring antitrust as a serious area of concern. By the way, people understand this, like we've done polling and there's overwhelming support for more antitrust enforcement for trust busting 2.0 for anti monopoly work, people hate corporate monopolies. And it's actually one of those areas where the people are way ahead of politicians in understanding the power structures in this country.
0: We've just heard clips today, starting with The Majority Report looking at digital platforms that are defining life online. Wisecrack dove into how anger works and how it's monetized online. This Machine Kills critiqued a system designed to change a person's accent as a workaround for racism. Your Undivided Attention looked at the privacy, propaganda, and national security threats of TikTok. TikTok. The Arts of Travel explained the neo-feudal business models of the gig economy. And Future Hindsight spoke with Sefer Teachout about the need to re-regulate and break up tech giants. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard bonus clips from Future Tense, looking at both the benefits and dangers of being able to experiment with new identities
5: in digital spaces. In the digital world, we can be however we want to be. And people may take exception to that,
8: but the feedback we get is somewhat more remote. So that
5: social feedback in the digital world doesn't tend to have the immediacy, that very strong impact on people's behavior. And that's one of the big differences that you find between real world behavior and digital world behavior.
0: And this machine kills compared to the danger of an AI-fueled robot war to the harms being created by advanced technology right now.
5: There are already many systems which are quite excruciating in their latent cruelty, and adding, you know, uh, the capacity of AI to these systems really amps up a lot of the the tendencies which are already present both uh, sort of technical, institutional, and, and to some extent psychological, that allow these things to happen in the first place. And, and to my mind, make them even more weaponized, more dangerous. And I see AI having a real effect there right now. Nothing to do with you know, with some projections of a sci-fi future.
0: To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly to the new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestofleft.com support, or shoot me an email requesting a financial hardship membership, because we don't let a lack of funds stand in the way of hearing more information. And now to wrap up, as I said, I have some thoughts on how to use the internet in a way that makes it much less frustrating and terrible for your mental health and Otherwise, uh, the first thing to to note and, and sort of understand about the modern Internet is that it's literally addictive, literally, and so needs to be treated as such. It's like a drug or, you know, an alcohol abuse scenario. So if you feel the negative effects of Internet addiction, social media addiction, anything along those lines, even a little bit. Maybe you don't have an extreme case, maybe you have a mild case, but it's hard to find a person these days who doesn't have a case of internet addiction of some form. So I pulled about half a dozen listicles on how to break social media addiction and then have just pulled together all the best pieces of advice from all those different articles. So I'm going to go down a quick list, save this section of the podcast to listen to later and make all these changes in your digital world. So the first is to use any features of your operating system that allow you to set up things like app time limits and periods of downtime. And now, look, we all know that if you're an adult and you're setting your own time limits, then you can just work around that. You can put in the passcode and reactivate it. Sure. Yes, we we know. But the strategy is about creating speed bumps for yourself. You know, you're not going to put your phone in a locked safe that you don't have the code for right (laughs) but if you create enough speed bumps that make it just a little bit less likely in each instance that you're going to gravitate towards the part of the internet you're addicted to over time you will likely see impacts so using those operating system features is just one part of that strategy another part people recommend this all the time delete the apps that doesn't mean delete your account i mean that sure delete your account if, if you can pull that off please go ahead otherwise you can delete the apps so it just makes it a little bit less convenient you can still go to facebook.com or twitter.com or whatever but if the apps aren't there it's a little bit less convenient but for some people that is not an option. It's literally not an option. You need those apps for something, often for work or whatever. So another option is just move them off your home screen so that you have to find them intentionally rather than tapping on them mindlessly because they're staring you in the face on your home screen. Another good one is to turn off all notifications from anything that's not a human. That was sort of baseline recommendation up until about a year ago, but I've really been liking the scheduled delivery option that Apple implemented about a year ago for all. Well, I use it for all my non-human notifications that I still want to receive. Like, you know, you have a library book ready to check out. I get a push notification for that, but it doesn't come to me randomly in the middle of the day. It comes in the scheduled, you know, collected group of notifications. Now, within a given app or platform, Facebook, Twitter, anywhere where you can follow or subscribe to content creators or or outlets, obviously a good piece of advice is to unfollow and unsubscribe from any sources that don't genuinely add value to your life. That way, when you're on those platforms, the average quality of the things you see will end up being much higher. Another one that gets recommended a lot, but that people have a lot of trouble with, is keeping the phone out of the bedroom so that it's not the last thing you're looking at at night, nor is it the first thing you're looking at in the morning. People, for obvious reasons, have a lot of trouble with this one, usually because they use their phone as their alarm clock. Of course, you can kick it old school and use a physical alarm clock. My favorite thing of the technology world in the last several years was the realization that... If you have some sort of a, of a you know wrist-based device, a smart watch or a Fitbit or a you know whatever, using that as an alarm clock, personally I find it to be great. I've always hated audible alarm clocks, you know, loud noises or radio or you know whatever clicking on in the morning to, to wake me up. Not to mention if you and someone sleeping in the same room as you don't need to get up at the same time having a silent alarm that's just tapping you on the wrist is that was a game changer. And uh, and I really <laughs> enjoy that feature in the, you know, for the instances when I need an alarm, I 100% go with a watch instead of audio type alarm. This next one is super customizable to whatever your personal interests are, but I, I appreciated that one of those listicles included it because it was recognizing that social media use usually comes from triggers that we're bored or anxious or you know something in our lives that makes us fidget and reach for a phone to look at. And you should understand that even if you are trying to get away from internet usage or social media, those trigger events are still going to be there. We're still going to get bored. We're still going to get anxious. And so uh, replacing the phone or the internet with something else, maybe drawing or writing or sending a text message to a friend or something along those lines, instead of getting sucked down an algorithmically driven rabbit hole, is a way to scratch that itch sort of recognizing that we need to scratch that itch with something, but doing it just in a better, healthier way. And then sort of along those lines, this this was a totally unique piece of advice that I had not seen anywhere else before. And this section of this listicle says to think about why you'd like to be on social media. Literally ask yourself that question. And it goes on to explain that, Everything we do in life is about intention. So why do you want to do something? What will it bring you? And this is all about sort of understanding the the mental processes behind addiction. And it reminded me of the, the five whys technique. And so you start by asking a question about a problem such as, why do you use social media too much? And you answer that question to yourself and then ask and answer the question why five times so you go deeper and deeper and deeper with each asking of the question getting to a deeper level of understanding of why is this thing happening why am i doing what i'm doing and it's a great mental exercise just to get to deeper roots of problems than we usually do but then finally sometimes you need to fight fire with fire in which case there are apps and extensions, you know, browser extensions that can be installed to help manually enforce limited internet and social media use. So for Chrome There's, I think the News Feed Eradicator extension is probably the most popular and it works on a bunch of sites, Facebook and Twitter and YouTube and Reddit and is, I think, to some degree customizable, but basically it makes it so that when you go to those sites, you can still use them by searching. You can search for what you want to find, but you won't be fed automatic information through an algorithm. But if you want to be, you can turn it off just and then set a timer for, you know, give me one minute, five minutes, however long, to just use the site as normal. So that's Chrome Newsfeed Eradicator. And Safari has similar stuff. There's one called Be Timeful and another called Intentional Blocker. And those are both all in one social web blockers with built-in timers. Just for YouTube, I think there's a free one called Focus. On Safari, and there's a bunch of different ones on Chrome. I didn't test them all, but uh, you know, you can, you can search around and find stuff to, uh, you know, for instance, turn the recommendations on YouTube off so that you can watch the videos that you intentionally want to watch and not get sucked down the rabbit hole of the recommendations. And then the last bit from any of those listicles was a piece of advice that I've never had the chance to try, but they, they suggested trying accountability apps. And these are to help build habits, not having necessarily to do with internet use, just building habits, period. Any kind of habit you want to build. So there are these accountability apps. One article literally just said, do a search for accountability apps and look around at the options. And as I said, I haven't had time to test them so I don't have recommendations, but you know the advice is out there and there are apps built to help instill new habits by sort of working with psychology to trick you into doing the thing you actively want to do anyway. So those are out there. And then, absolute lastly, and this is sort of separate from social media and internet addiction, this is just because the internet is so full of garbage that I find it nearly unusable these days. There are browser extensions that uh, do great things that have improved my life. There are extensions that will automatically reject cookie requests that every single website pops up asking for your permission, Right. So you can automatically reject those or accept them if you want, but have that be done automatically by an extension so you don't have to do it yourself manually. You can block all kinds of ads. I mean, this is not new. Ad blockers are not new, but you know, even including YouTube ads, pre-roll and mid-roll ads. And, uh, and then another one is um, activating dark mode. Like operating systems have dark mode built into them, but when you're looking at a browser, That's generally just the frame of the browser. And so there are dark mode apps that will actually convert the websites themselves so that the black text on a white background inverts. And that cuts way, way down on the bright light streaming into your face after sunset. So as I said, all of those extensions have very much improved my internet experience. And I'm sure that you'd be able to find versions for yourself based on your own particular setup if any of that appeals to you As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to j at bestoftheleft.com That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Ken, and Brian for their volunteer work, helping put our transcripts together. And thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus show co-hosting and thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestoftheleft.com support through our patreon page or from right inside the apple Podcasts app membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good bonus episodes in addition to there being extra content and no ads in all of our regular episodes all through your regular podcast player and if you want to continue the discussion, join our Best of the Left Discord community to discuss the show or the news or anything else you like. Links to join are in the show notes. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com.